You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. there, everyone. Good afternoon. You're listening to Ocean Currents, a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the mighty ocean. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to KWMR from the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is one of the most unique, vibrant marine ecosystems off the coast here of Point Reyes and part of a national system of special marine protected areas off the coast, off the coast here. On Ocean Currents, we focus on what's happening out there on what covers three-quarters of the planet. So there's a lot of territory to cover on this show. We talk about discoveries, research, ocean policy, and ways for us land-based folks to get involved and learn more. This program runs the first Monday of every month, if you'd like to tune in regularly, and it's part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 on KWMR, you can tune in to listen in about a local environmental or economic topic. This is a special month in June. We celebrate World Oceans Day. It's actually tomorrow. And June 11th marks Jacques Cousteau's 100th birthday. Jacques Cousteau brought us underwater by inventing scuba and showing everyone at the time what lives beneath the sea through a video series and urging us to protect it for years to to come. So we'll touch a little bit more on that towards the end of the show. But today, we'll focus on our topic for today. My guest is here. This part of the California coast has several superlatives. In spring months, our coast receives the highest wind speeds, the coldest sea surface temperatures, an enormous diversity of marine life, including the smallest of marine life in plankton and the largest marine animal, the blue whale. And this part of the coast has perhaps the largest concentration of white sharks in the eastern Pacific and maybe the largest in size as well. But we'll have to check in with my guest today to make sure on that. Long feared and promoted as a gruesome predator by the media in recent years, attitudes are starting to shift. And white sharks, like so many marine animals, they're hard to research and learn about because they live underwater. Uh, This specific fish has very big teeth, and they don't do so well outside of their native habitat and environment. However, there are a select group of folks that have figured out some ways to learn about this awesome ocean fish. So today, I'm really pleased to welcome Scott Anderson. He's a local resident here in West Marin, West, hello, West Marin, and has been able to help uncover many mysteries about this fish over the last few years and has incredible experiences. So, Scott, welcome to KWMR. Thank you, Jenny. It's good to be here. How are you? I'm good. So about two years ago, the Sanctuary and the National Seashore, we co-hosted a lecture in the Red Barn classroom. And we had Scott and Ron Elliott, another local with lots of white shark experience in the room. And the room was packed to the gills, out the doors, every square inch of carpet. And I realized at the end, I was like, I got to get Scott on my show. And so um, I take it that since you're on land right now, that it's not shark season. That's correct. It's uh, it's <laughs> off season. Um, if it was shark season, we probably wouldn't be studying them out there because uh, the winds and everything this time of year make it almost impossible really to, to uh, be on the water every day. So. Excellent. Well, first, before we go into details of sharks, how did you first get involved in shark research? Well, um, it really kind of came to me, uh, the research aspect of things, um, just by being in the right place at the right time. Um, I'd always had an interest in white sharks, especially um, growing up as a kid, um, 
the fishermen I talked to would see these big sharks and describe them and stuff, and they really didn't even know what they were. They just said they were really large. And so the curiosity was there, and so I kept uh, track over the years of newspaper articles and sightings and things like that. And anyway, got a college degree and finally uh, went out to the Farallons as a bird bander. It was a long process to get to there. But when I got out there, I met Phil Henderson. And um, he stopped on the path as we were walking up to the house and said he thought he saw a shark fin, and, and I couldn't believe it. And I said, you really thought you saw a shark fin? And he told me that at some point during my stay there of two weeks that somebody would probably see a shark attack on a seal or something like that, but it may not be me. And uh, that was kind of a, a challenge to me at that point. So I ended up seeing quite a few in the time I was there, and they said, well, why don't you do sharks and we'll do the birds, and that's how it all started. <laughs> started out with the birds moving over to the sharks. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, sharks are obviously white sharks are one of the one of the fish that we focus on a lot here because everyone's so scared of them, and they're such awesome animals. But there are so many other kinds of sharks in the waters around Point Reyes, um, in Tomales Bay. And can you give us an overview? I've heard you talk about some sharks before that I didn't realize were around here. Can you yeah. tell us some of the other ones that are around? Yeah, there's actually uh, Tomales Bay is a little bit of an anomaly on the California coast in that there's <clears> a lot of different shark species, and um, and some of them aren't really found uh, locally along the coast here, but they're found sur- further south. Uh, the one shark I'm thinking of and comes to mind is the angel shark. Um, angel sharks are kind of common in Southern California. Um, they're pretty rare in San Francisco Bay, and I really don't know any other bay that has them on a regular basis, but there is probably a resident population in Tomales Bay, and they lay on the bottom and feed on small fish that swim over them. Um, so that would be a shark that would be interesting to find out more about. But the, the leopard sharks are in the bay and outside the bay. Um, I'm sure almost everybody in the local area has seen them before. There's brown smooth hounds, which often people call sand sharks. Um, there's another larger shark that's called a seven gill. It can reach up to nine feet. I've caught them right off a of chicken ranch beach up to nine feet long and a couple hundred pounds. Um, they feed on other sharks and really aren't dangerous to people, but they are quite large. And they're in the bay. Um, and as you go uh, getting into sort of uh, the rays and the flatter fish, you have bat rays. And there's actually a, a ray that's pretty rare along the coast, except it's in the bay here, uh, the thorny-backed ray, which um, usually you find places like Baja and stuff. Um, uh, there's a few skates. Sometimes people catch uh, California skates here. Um, and then as you go outside the bay, you start seeing a lot of other species, um, things like blue sharks come in uh, the coastal waters here in the summer. There's mako sharks that when you get out into the warmer water just offshore. Um, I mentioned seven gills already. There's a few six gills around. So there's a lot of different shark species, and they all have a different sort of place in the environment. Um, they're not all out there trying to eat seals and big things. Uh, they're feeding on crabs and fish and things like that. And they really, um, if people are worried about sharks, they're really not something to worry about. What about thrasher sharks? Oh, thresher sharks um, are found actually in Tomales Bay. I've seen them jumping in there and um, along the coast, particularly in the summer months. And they feed on small fish like anchovies and uh, and herring and things like that. And what they do is they have a long tail. That's what they call a thresher shark. And they swim in a circle around the school of fish and they slap their tail through the fish, stunning them, and then come around and, and feed on the fish that are immobilized by that. So I guess you got to spend a lot of time out there to see these things. I've never seen a thrasher shark. Yeah, you do have to spend a lot of time out there, and I guess that's one of the things that um, you just have to be out there. A lot of people that study sharks, though, actually uh, work in labs, and um, they study tissues and things like that, and they don't really get the, uh, the field experience. But for me, I've always just wanted to go outside, and so it works pretty well for me. Nice. 
So we have six gill sharks out at Cordell. We see them a lot. They yeah. seem to be a bit deeper. And they're always curious. They come up to the ROV or the submersible, and then they take off. I think they're really? curious by the light, but then they're gone. Beautiful shark. They are. So one of the things that I hear about a lot as an educator is white versus great white. What's the difference? Oh, yeah. Well, what do, you, what do biologists I'm glad prefer? You asked that. Oh, well, a biologist would prefer a white shark. And, um, you know, the genus of species is Carcharodon carcarius, and that's a scientific name. When you get into common names of things, you know, you run into it with birds. Uh, the, the British have all these different names for uh, birds that we see, and, you know, they call a common loon a great northern diver. And so common names can be uh, a little bit frustrating. But what's happened with white shark is it's become great white shark, and it's sticking now to the point where you can't shake it. In fact, it's so bad that when they keep these little baby white sharks down in uh, the area around, well, down in the aquarium in Monterey, they have them on display and people come up and say, well, where's the great white shark? And the person who's the docent or whatever says, well, that is a white shark. And I've even heard that they'll say, well, when it gets big, does it become a great white shark? So people just sort of can't shake the uh, name. But there is no lesser white shark. There is nothing else other than the white shark. And in the literature, that's what they're called. That's what I call them. Once in a while, I slip, but... <laughs> it depends on what the media likes, right? <laughs> yeah. Most importantly, we have these sharks. And, and they are great. <laughs> and people are starting to learn more about them. That's one thing that's really changed a lot over the years from yeah. Jaws. I just read that one of the models of Bruce of, from mm, the movie Jaws yes. was just found at a dump in L.A. And it was like big news. <laughs> really? Wow. It's probably worth a lot. <laughs> He's been uh, resurrected. <laughs> so... Um, about the research, because you've been involved with research out the Farallons, and more recently you've been spending time near shore and have found some interesting findings. But I read recently that your team, that you, who do you work with right now in terms of shark research? Oh, okay, so um, we're working with the TOP project, which is uh, T-O-P-P, Tagging of Pelagic, Pacific Pelagics. So you could go online and look that up if you want to just Google it. Um, but it's part of a larger project that um, basically they're tagging a lot of large animals in the Pacific. Uh, albatross, blue whales, um, elephant seals, sharks, salmon sharks, white sharks, all these different things. And the idea was to look at to see if there's any kind of common... Um, thread that these large animals have to, uh, you know, either have in common or that they, movements that are similar or something that sort of makes us feel like the environment's more connected. And it's a very interesting sort of quest. Um, and what we found, the main thing that's come out of this at, to date is, is that um, they, almost all these animals use the California bite at some point. They travel through it or they spend some time there. So it's turning out that the California Bight, which is uh, the area south of Point Conception down into uh, around the Channel Islands and stuff, is a really important area, and and nobody really kind of knew that about these large animals. So that's the first thing that's coming out. It's, of course, the ongoing project. Um, with the white shark aspect, I'm working specifically with uh, Sal Jorgensen, uh, Taylor Chapel, and uh, Paul Conivy, and Barbara Block, and that's sort of the team. And what are, their, what are the main questions that the team is looking at right now for sharks? Well, we've been doing a lot of different kinds of research over the years, tagging animals, uh, photo ID work, and um, I'm sure we'll talk more about that as the program progresses here. But um, really, uh, the, the kinds of questions that are left right now have to do with long-term monitoring to see you know, how the population either changes or doesn't change. Um, as well as looking at um, the females and the, well, the big question is where do they mate and um, 
and what are the movements of these females because they have a apparently an every other year cycle or even more than that. And um, the satellite tags that we've been using in the past only last up to a year. And so we don't have that two-year record yet. Um, although we have a lot of information that indicates they probably go to Southern California on the off year and pop down there. That's what we think anyway. Hmm. So there was some work with the tags recently where you put in some acoustic stations mm-hmm. to listen for these tags where they would somewhat ping mm-hmm. anytime they swam by. Yep. And uh, it was quite surprising to learn that there perhaps is a movement in San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Um, it's <laughs> kind of funny to think about because that's exactly probably what everybody didn't want to hear, you know, is, is that the sharks sometimes wander into San Francisco Bay. Um but it's not surprising. The mouth of San Francisco Bay is a wide piece of water. It's very deep there. Um, it's huge. It's not a small body of water. So it's not surprising to think about them because they've been seen off Point Bonita and Diablo. And um, there was a person attacked right at Baker's Beach, which is just outside the Golden Gate. And um, and so really the other thing is, is that who, where do you draw the line to the opening of San Francisco Bay? Do you go from Seal Rocks across to uh, Point Bonita? which if that were the case, then they've been seen in San Francisco Bay a lot of times. But if you draw the line more where the Golden Gate Bridge is, then it becomes uh, less likely to have seen them in there. However, some uh, acoustic arrays were put down there to listen for salmon. Uh, mm. they, they put these acoustic tags on salmon, and each tag has a, a signature code to it, and so each individual can be tracked. And you put these uh, monitors in the water, and they listen for these fish to swim by. When the fish swims by, it records them. And then later on, you can go download that data, and, and you know where they are and where they've been. And so uh, the people that are put this uh, array down there, they called us and said, well, we've, we've seen some of your animals on our array. And the thing that was interesting about it is that they weren't all there at the same time. And they, there was at least four different individuals that, that had gone through this area. So um, they did travel underneath the Golden Gate and, and um, were recorded there. So it's better than just somebody saying they, they thought they saw a shark. It's actually proof. And the mystery of where they went will remain yeah. to be seen. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, those pictures of the – you probably remember the picture of the shark jumping out of the water where there's a helicopter and a guy on a ladder next to the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, that's, all those pictures are kind of coming back now. Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those tuning in, this is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and today I have Scott Anderson in the studio here, and we're talking about white sharks and the white shark research that Scott's been a part of here for many years and learning a little bit more about the shark population out here. Well, speaking of bays, I have to ask for the locals here about Tomales Bay. When I first came here um, about 10 years ago, I heard a lot about Tomales Bay. And, you know, we swim there, and people are like, no, there's sharks. And Well, of course there's sharks, but white sharks in Tomales Bay. What's the myth? What's the yeah. fact? Well, okay, so uh, it's kind of a – it's been a long road to hearing about the breeding ground of the great white shark – they always throw great white in there as well, uh, it being in Tomales Bay. And I heard about it from when I first started getting interested in white sharks, and I still hear it, and I still hear it from people who are from overseas, you know, English people and stuff like that. And so it's a rumor. And I believe that the rumor has uh, been created out of several facts being put together that don't add up, kind of like the way Jaws was written. There's different little scenarios, and then they put it all together into one story. So here's the story. Uh, there were more people attacked off a of Tamales Point back in the 60s and 70s and 80s than anywhere else in the world, attacked by white sharks, than anywhere else in the world. So 
world-famous shark attack spot. Then inside Tomales Bay, there's lots of small sharks, these different ones that I mentioned earlier, the leopard sharks and things like that. Um, some small white sharks were caught in Tomales Bay years ago when they used to use these tramble nets to catch uh, white sea bass and things like that. So um, there is evidence that they've come in the bay, um, but uh, there is no evidence of any kind of breeding ground or any large population coming in and staying in the bay. Um, they are right outside the bay uh, on an almost daily basis in the fall into the winter, and they use that area, and that's where those people were attacked. Uh, in the bay, it's a whole other scenario, and I really believe that basically there could be another shark that's called a salmon shark. Uh, looks like a white shark. It's reported as a white shark every time one washes up, and they, st they tend to strand here and wash up in uh, morbid condition, dying or dead, on a pretty regular basis, and we get as many as six or seven in one year. Um, so you've got these little sharks look like white sharks. They wash up dead. You've got big ones biting people off the point. And I think it just kind of all came together into this story. Well, it's a breeding ground, and once you know a story gets printed or told, it just keeps going. What about inside, like near Clam Island and Dillon Beach area? Is it possible oh, yeah. in the channel there? Yeah, actually it is possible. Not only is it possible, but um, there's been a recorded attack on a seal there where the people on on the clam clipper saw blood in the water and there was actually somebody up on the uh, bluff that was watching to see uh, seal disturbance by the clam clipper and kind of watching everything and they saw it as well so it was confirmed by more than one group so uh, apparently a white shark kind of just uh, you know decided to come into the bay there and saw a seal right there off of where they haul out so it can happen but rare the further up the bay you go the less likely to see one and like I say in, in, around the corner just off Bird Rock and Tomales Point and Bodega Head and, and the Point Reyes. They're there almost every day during the fall and winter, and that's where they really spend their time. So fall and winter are the months. Um, is this because of elephant seals here on the coast, or what? what's the seasonality? Yeah. Well, we don't really know exactly why it's the fall and winter, <laughs> fall into winter. There's uh, a bunch of different ideas. One idea that I think is important is water quality. The water in the fall into winter is relatively clean, clear water. Um, white sharks are a visual predator, so they're better able to uh, see their prey in that kind of conditions. Um, they also, at the end of the breeding season for all these seals, the elephant seals, uh, California sea lions, and harbor seals, they're at their peak number, and the pups, instead of being little scrawny things with no fatty layer, are full-grown, you know, they're not full-grown, but they're at their full size, and they're fat, and they're, there's, there's, there's something to eat there. So uh, you, you put together the total number of pinnipeds or seals and sea lions that uh, are in the area, along with uh, good water quality. And then the other half of the shark's life, which we don't really totally understand, but they do go offshore, and, and there's got to be a component to that, a timing of that. So there might be a reason why they do that then to go offshore, but it definitely is the most productive time to be feeding here, as would be in the fall into early winter. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of overlaps with, I guess it depends on what time of fall, but usually the fall months we also get some of the warmer waters from the Davidson Current along the coast. Maybe yep. more people swimming, but... Those diehard surfers, they're year-round, so. Yeah, and there is a phenomenon where more are seen in the fall than in the winter, even though there are probably just as many here in the winter, because there's more people out. And um, you just can't help but realize that uh, where people are and the sharks are, they're going to see them more likely than, you know, uh, in in other places. So. Mm -hmm. Speaking of people and whatnot, one of the studies that you did, starting at the Farallons, I think, was 
um, doing a couple different types of decoys and determining mm-hmm. how uh, sharks react differently to different decoys. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And caller on the line, we're not accepting calls, unfortunately, but please do keep listening. Yeah. Um, well, the way it developed is, uh, again, I was I just got on the island there, and I was uh, sitting. There's a window that faces to the south, and it's a beautiful view looking out the window. And, you know, everyone sits at that desk and looks out there. And I happened to be sitting there uh, in the evening just before dark, and I saw a log just bobbing along, and this shark came right up from underneath it, rolled on it, and swam away and of course I ran all the way down there thinking I would see it again and I didn't because they it was just checking it out but um it sort of it just made me think why did it check out the log you know why would it do that and then I started realizing that well maybe they maybe they're visual predator and looking at things so I made this decoy that looked kind of like a seal wasn't really that well made and uh and uh I just put it on a fishing line and the wind blew it out away from the island and um put it out for two hours and nothing happened and put it away and the next day I did the same thing and out of the corner of my eye I saw the shark jump out of the water and attack the thing and so I was like wow that was pretty interesting unfortunately the thing I made was made out of like a pool toy that uh, popped it right away and and ruined it so you know I had to make another one so finally (laughs) I got to the point where I was getting tired of rebuilding things and trying to make new things and new designs and all that stuff so I just uh tried to surfboard and it worked as good as anything and was the easiest thing to put out and bring back in. So so I used those for a while, um, and the results were pretty impressive. The sharks really thought it was a seal and would come all the way out of the water to attack this thing and stuff. Usually the board would just bounce out of the way because they hit it so hard. And they rarely would come back and bite it a second time. They usually just figured it out. And then as the season progressed, the more they would see it, the less they were likely to bite it as well. But because their nature is is that they have to uh, capitalize on every sighting of a seal, they can't just say, oh, is it a seal, isn't it a seal? They are thinking it's a seal. They sort of are committed at a certain stage. So um, they, they, that's when they just keep going and bite the thing. Now, is this, these are the adults, right, that eat yes. mammals? Yes. What? And the juveniles eat fish, too. Pretty much. Or do juveniles eat mammals, too? Well, I I think that if there was a dead whale on the bottom of the ocean and a juvenile was there, he'd probably feed on it. Um, But no one's ever documented that. The main thing about the juveniles is they really are in the areas close to shore where there's fish. They have smaller teeth. The teeth are more narrow um, and designed, actually, more like what you would see in a mako's mouth. Um, which is a fish eater. And then as the animal grows larger, um, the teeth get wider and are what we sort of think of as uh, white shark's teeth with those big uh, broad triangle, really good for uh, taking big pieces of flesh out of marine mammals, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there really is a difference between the little ones and the big ones. The little ones don't bite people in general, um, and they're not feeding on seals and sea lions. They're feeding on fish. And then at around I was going to say 10 years, that's not right, 10 feet or so, they start to switch over to marine mammals. And the one group that we really don't know very much about um, these days is that intermediate group the, between the real adults, the big ones, uh, let's say anything over 12 feet, and then anything under 8 feet. There's this sort of gap there in, in what those younger animals are doing. The small ones that they've been uh, keeping in the Monterey Bay Aquarium these days, those they're, they're starting to understand their movements and stuff like that because they've been able to put quite a few satellite tags on them and, 
they can see how fast they grow in the aquarium. You can really do a lot of interesting things. So Yeah, it's been amazing what they've been able to accomplish yes, it there. Is. Yep. Did you go to see any of them down there? I haven't been to see any of them <laughs> yet, but I went to see Sandy, the one that they kept at Steinhardt for, I think it was only oh, in there right. for a week or whatever, but that was, yeah, I stood in line for two hours to get in there to see that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I think good. it's been fantastic for the public awareness about Sharks and yeah, that's a good. really good program. What Monterey's doing, they're very aware of what the public um, is sensitive to, and they really are um, uh, open about what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. And um, the public has responded very po- positively from that, so it's good. That's cool. Yeah. So with the sharks, the Farallons, there's this red triangle that people talk about: the mm-hmm. Farallons, Año Nuevo, and Point Reyes region, because those are the three main areas with mm-hmm. with uh, these elephant seals. But how many sharks have you seen between the Farallons and Tomales Point? Or is that like a regular area back and forth, or are they distinct? Stay at the Farallons, stay oh, at Point, okay. Tomales um, Point? You mean like a shark from the Farallons, how often would it swim over to Tomales Point? Yeah, do they go back and forth? Not really. Um, there is some movement, and um, there could be a shark that, let's say, shows up at Tomales Point for a couple weeks and then moves to the Farallons and then stays there for the rest of the season. Or you could see one actually be at the Farallons, bounce over to Point Reyes, and then bounce back to the Farallons. Um, but in general, the ones that we see at the Farallons, um, they kind of are part of a group that is distinctive for the Farallons um, in that we're seeing the same sharks show up to the same site year after year. And we have a record now of one that's no, 22 years. Um, so, wow. Yeah, 22 different Year, well, not different years, but up to 22 years span. And, you know, in some years we didn't see this individual, but um, it's pretty impressive to see the site fidelity. They really do like certain spots. And the Farallons has really got to be um, the hub of the mature population. And the reason why I say that is is that you can see an average of a, an attack a day through the fall there in October into November um, one per day on the average. You might not see one for a couple of days, but then you might see three in one day um, on a regular basis almost every fall. So they're, they're feeding there on a, on a regular basis, and, it's, and you can see it, and it's the same group of sharks uh, year after year. So it's, it's a pretty uh, – I think that the mature, big population of animals use that as like the – well, it's the hub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the best way to describe it. They do go to these other places, and there are large sharks that are um, regular uh, along these coastal places like Tomales Point or Duxbury Reef or um, Bodega. But um, anyway, yeah, we don't know everything. <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming you know you know a lot of these animals, and you have you know you can de- determine oh so and so is back this year, and so and so is mm-hmm. this by photo IDing and video in terms of like looking for visual cues on them, scars yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, the the certain individuals uh, actually have certain behaviors where they'll circle the boat left to right rather than right to left. Some won't go under the boat. Some won't come near the boat. Um, so there's behaviors. But the main thing is the dorsal fin is what we use as a standard to identify an individual. Um, and the one that I talked about earlier that was 22 years, that dorsal fin has really not changed at all. Of course, the shark has gotten a little bit bigger. Um, first saw it, it was thought to be 12 to 13 feet. Now we see it, we think it's about 15 feet, but um, there's still some that are bigger than that. So, um, yeah, it, the dorsal fin is the main thing, but there are some that have huge, massive scars on the side of the body or a cut tail, and those are, are real easy to identify. So, you know, when we when we see one in the field and we identify it in the field, it's like seeing an old friend. It's a pretty amazing experience. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Do some not come back one year, but 
then they come back another year? Like, they might have yeah. gone somewhere else? Yeah, they, there's ones that skip a year. Um, the females, like I said, they, they usually have a pattern of every other year. And um, so, yeah, uh, it, 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 it could be on a season that we don't see them, that we just didn't see them, that they were there, but we don't see them. And so we've, we've started to learn that also <laughs> from the acoustic tags. Uh, the acoustic tags... You can put on them, and then the next year, if it's still on there, when they return, it's picked up by the receiver. So you don't even have to see it to know it was there. And that's really filled in a lot of the gaps because uh, the photo ID work, you only get a photograph when there's a shark there and you're there. And we're not there every day just because of the weather alone. So um, so we've kind of filled in the picture with the satellite tags and the acoustic tags and the photo ID. Cool. Well, we have to take a really quick break. I promise it'll be really quick. This is so fascinating. I can't believe it's one thirty already, but we do have to do a quick station ID and um, announcement. We'll be right back. We'll talk a little bit more about the satellite studies. So those of you tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock. I have Scott Anderson in the studio with me today, who is a shark researcher and researcher and has been working off the coast here for many years and is filling in lots of details about this mysterious animal for us. So stay with us. We'll be right back. is Jennifer Stock, and I have Scott Anderson in the studio with us today. You're listening to Ocean Currents, and we're talking about white sharks, uh, mainly around the Point Reyes, Farallon Island region. But Scott's been studying white sharks out here for how many years? You know, I, didn't, I lost track, but I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing since that shark that um, we've had for 22 years, it'd be probably like 23 years now. Wow, 23 <laughs> years. Yeah. So there's lots of long-term information in Scott's mind, but one of the technologies that's really changed in the last few years is satellite tagging, and that's something that you've been a big part of. And what has some of the satellite tagging information produced in terms of new information for the sharks around this region? Yeah, okay, well, um, the, the, the sharks disappear every year, and they did in a way that sort of mystified us. It was like, where did they go? And, and I used to have this theory that they moved around California. You know, I'd take sightings and say, oh, well, look, at they're down there now, and now they're up here, and try to make a map of some kind of movements, and it never really worked out. And then one day I saw a small remora on one of the sharks that had just returned, and I, I thought, wow, well, that's we don't have remoras around here. Remora is a small sucker fish that will attach to whales and dolphins and and sharks, and then they uh, they don't hurt the animal. They feed where the animal feeds, and then they reattach. Anyway, uh, it was surprising to see that, and so it made me think maybe they go offshore. And so anyway, when we put the satellite tags on them, um, we found out they do go offshore, and we found out they go to a place that's uh, called we call it the cafe, and um, it's a place that's between the tip of Baja and Hawaii. And people always say it's the size of Texas, but let's just say it's the size of Alaska <laughs> or California. It's really big, big place. And uh, the sharks are all, well, most of them go there. The other place that some of them go is through the Hawaiian chain, right, the main islands, about 500 miles uh, west of that, or south, actually, southwest. Uh, and then they hang out in that spot. And um, the, when they're at these places, we know that they go deep. And they do a lot of bounce diving instead of going uh, 
Horizontally, they go vertical up and down, up and down, up and down. And you, at first, when you look at the data, you think there's something wrong with it or it can't be a fish. But it turns out that a lot of these pelagic fish do this. It, the ocean is more dynamic going up and down than it is going sideways because you have changing temperature and you're going through, uh, the, uh, well, there's a place called the deep scattering layer, so there's food there. Uh, most animals, turns out, in the big open ocean that are in the water are going up and down rather than sideways. So that's totally interesting to me. I know Humboldt squid do something similar, really? yep. but go even further to the oxygen uh, limited zone, yeah. something like that. The sharks do that too. Sometimes they get down into there, which is uh, hard to believe. Now that's actually something I heard about recently. Another shark researcher out of Southern California was talking about this region where they're going to, and there's also squid there. Mm-hmm. Uh, any p- link there? Squid doesn't seem like the food source for a yeah. shark. Well, um, there's two theories out there right now. There's just was a, in, in Hawaii, uh, what was it, January, there was a symposium uh, on white sharks, and the last one was 15 years before that, so it's long overdue. But um, all the people from all over the world that study white sharks got together and told their stories. And um, it was a really good symposium, really well produced, and a lot of really interesting things came out of it. Almost all the populations now are identified, and um, people know where, the, where they're going, north, south, all that kind of stuff. So, so it's really good. All this technology with these tags has really advanced what we know. Um, but now I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> I got off the subject. What were we just talking about? We were talking about— Oh, the different the- types of— uh, um, the different research groups. Okay, so the, the people yeah. that are studying the sharks at Guadalupe Island um, believe that the sharks are breeding along the coast at these um, uh, sites where we know them, like the Farallons and Guadalupe Island and Anya Nuevo and Tomales Point, that they actually use those sites as breeding areas, and that's where the mating takes place. And then they go offshore, and they call this offshore zone that we call the cafe. And I'll just explain the cafe. The reason we named it that is because it left the two options open. One is they could be going there to get something to eat, or they could be going there to socialize. And so that's why we called it the cafe. Um, but they called their place the sofa. <laughs> which, Sometimes uh, there's sofas in cafes. <laughs> there is. And uh, there was a few jokes about that at the symposium, I'm sure. You know, it was very funny. But basically, sofa stands for uh, shared offshore foraging area. So in that name, it already implies that there's a foraging going on. And um, the shared part is, is that our sharks and their sharks all go to the same area together, uh, meet out there. So um, our our group thinks that they probably breed out there and that there's uh, the reason they're going out there is probably socializing or, or breeding behavior and that they're here along the coast to really feed and there's an abundant rich food source and, and stuff like that. So we'll see. But uh, the paper's been written. The hypothesis is out there that they're breeding at these uh, seal colonies and uh, we don't see any evidence of it, but that's what they've put out there. So, so you know, there's still things to, uh, to figure out. Well, it's interesting because white sharks, you know, they're underwater most of the time. Unlike (laughs) humpback whales that come to the surface, we can Mm -hmm. see them and we know these distinct populations and where they overlap and where they breed and where they feed. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting to think about the same type of thing with white sharks, that there's these distinct populations maybe all going to that same region. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I recently read as one of the um, top program outcomes from the studies was the genetic distinction between the white shark population here, that it's Mm -hmm. actually distinct from the other ones. Yes. Um, yes, it is. And uh, the it, at the symposium, a woman who is a geneticist 
broke down the genetics uh, from all over the world of white sharks. She got samples from all the different populations. And um, working with Taylor Chapel here on um, photo ID uh, population estimate, he came up with a number that's between 250 to 300 animals. Uh, you know, these are adult white sharks along the central coast here. And um, the genetics came out to around that same number. And if you look at the genetics, um, I don't know anything about how how it really all breaks down. But when you look at it, they almost look like brothers and sisters. So we have a small population here. Most of the populations in the world are small, um, with the exception of the South African population seems to be the most robust. So is this probably the one of the larger concentrations here in the Pacific? Is this part of the coast? I mentioned that earlier, but I was kind of taking a guess, but I wasn't in really In the Pacific, sure. I would say probably. Um, fishermen sometimes catch uh, large white sharks in Japan, but there's no real concentration like what we see here. Um, yeah, really, um, the two main places these days are the central coast of California and then this Guadalupe Island. They've identified over 100 sharks that keep returning down there as well. Mm-hmm. Has there been um, any changes in population that we know about here for this population here? Obviously, we probably didn't have any baseline numbers, but in the 20-something years you've been here, have you seen an increase or a decrease or a stable population? It's such a good question, and it's so hard to answer because there isn't any past record. And really, you're guessing at that point. You really are guessing. And um, the thing that's changed in... In perspective of people that are on the water, uh, people surfing, um, you know, Salmon Creek has become this hot spot for shark attacks on people. Well, uh, it used to be a surf spot that only had a surfer once in a while. Well, now there's a but he's, there's mm-hmm. people surfing Salmon Creek every single day, and that's probably why there's so many incidences with the sharks there. The sharks have probably always been there. But you just put the people into the mix. So so things have changed. There's more people fishing these days. There's more intelligent people out there as well, people that are looking uh, at animals and identifying them. It used to just be, you know, you saw a shark, it was a story, and it just faded away. So um, it's so hard to tell. But from my experience, I would have to say that the population is pretty much staying the same. I see the same sharks year after year. I haven't seen any big increase. I haven't seen any big decrease either. Uh, I think if um, the fishing that used to take place here, they caught anywhere from one to five sharks, uh, white sharks in a in a year. And so it did have an impact, but probably we've probably come back from that impact. So. That's a question I wanted to ask, actually, is when did we, or was it the state, I guess, that passed a law, no white shark, or is that international? Is that... National okay. white shark yeah. fishing ban on fishing them. It's okay. So the the key thing is is that uh, white sharks are now considered a CITES species. So that's What's CITES. CITES conference for international um, species something something. I, I I really don't know what it breaks down to, but what it is is the control of movement of parts of those animals. So if you buy a white shark jaw in Cabo San Lucas and you try to go across the border, they're going to take it away from you and you could get fined. It'd be like coming back with a whale skull or something. So it puts them in a, in a protected status internationally. But they became protected here in California in 1993. There was a threat at the Farallons of some fishermen trying to catch some. And the place had had a history of fishermen catching white sharks. In fact, four were killed there in one day. Wow. And that was back in 1984. And after that, the number of sightings of sharks had gone down. 
And we do know that the, in any one given day, there might be 10 sharks there. So if you take away 10 or four, you're, you're going to impact the number. So um, uh, there was one more that was caught, again, just before this uh, law went into effect. And then there was other people trying to catch them there. So uh, no user group, uh, you know, no surfers, no fishermen complained about this law. Everyone was for it. So it went through without anybody complaining. You know, no, nobody was against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember growing up. I grew up on on the East Coast on Long Island. I remember going out to Montauk, and there'd be shark fishing tournaments. Mm-hmm. I, and it's interesting. I don't think that happens anymore. It's yeah, it happened here. Um, there used to be the Tomales Bay Shark and Ray Derby over in Marshall, and when I was about fifteen, my dad took me over there. And um, the idea was back then was to um, remove these sharks and rays from the bay so they wouldn't eat the oysters. And I don't know if you've seen the old oyster fences they, they used to have where they put a bunch of sticks in a row, and that was to keep the sharks and rays out. Um, so they would have this shark and ray der- derby, and people would go out and catch bat rays. And um, i got to thank my dad for taking me there because it wasn't his kind of event. <laughs> and it was a pretty weird scene. Um, there was fishermen coming in constantly with bat rays and... Uh, there was one seven-gill shark there, but the rest were all leopard sharks, bat rays, and they filled up two rendering trucks full oh. of these animals. And like I say, my dad took me there to see the sharks, and I saw it was interesting to me in, in one way, but it was also pretty amazing in the other. So that's not happening anymore, but um, it just goes to show you that we're living in a different time. So well, it's good. that's good to hear. Yeah. Um, in terms of tagging, it seems like there's been a lot of ethics. I get a lot of questions about this because I do a lot of education regarding seabird tagging, and mm. people always ask questions about the ethics of putting these things on animals. What is, mm. There's been some issues about that recently. And um, yeah. what are your thoughts on that in terms of getting more information? Well, it, uh, okay, so yeah, the, the tags, um, when they go on the animal, that's a small harpoon dart. There's different types of tags and different ways of applying them. The ones we put on are put on with a harpoon dart. And uh, what we've noticed is most of these uh, work themselves out within two years. Occasionally one is in some cartilage in the dorsal fin or something like that and stays longer. But actually, it's been, a, it's been one of the problems in tag shedding is, is that you put out all these tags and you think you're going to get a good record for the next three years. And if half of the tags fall off or come out, whatever you want to call it, um, it really it, it makes it harder to see what's going on. Um, then the satellite tags, we don't, we're not using satellite tags anymore because um, we already – they're so redundant. It's, we know where they're going and, and, and where, where they're doing that and stuff. And, and it's just really – it, it, no reason to continue to do it. Um, there's a new kind of tag called a spot tag that um, some scientists from Guadalupe are putting on and other scientists in other parts of the world. And what they do is they have to capture the shark. So they hook and line the animal and they tire it out and then they confine it in some way. Um, some people use a big tube that the shark is, is sort of fed into or led into and that immobilizes the shark long enough for them to drill some holes in the dorsal fin and uh, uh, bolt this tag onto the fin. The advantage to this tag is is that it can last um, anywhere. Well, they, they, they really don't know how long they're going to last because <laughs> it's a new generation of tags. But they say they can last up to six years. Um, I still think even if they get three years out of it, it's going to be uh, uh, interesting. Um, so this could help solve some of the mysteries about the movements of the females and things like that. The problem is it's very controversial. Um, it's a great 
effort put into um, not hurting the shark, but when you hook an animal, there's always a chance of injury. Um, the people from Guadalupe actually are lifting the animals out of the water on a huge lift. And once they're out of the water, if they're tired, they just don't even move. They just lay there. And then the guys take their samples and do the thing they're doing, put the tag on and let it go. And they say they've had 100% success. None of the animals have died. So um, anyway, at the symposium, it was controversial. A lot of people against it, a lot of people for it. Um, and I think it's just going to work itself out in the long run um, to see what the data is really like, if it really tells us anything that we don't already know. So that's that's kind of where it's at right now. So this would help determine where the females are going, and that's <clears throat> excuse me the big question in terms of breeding and yeah offshore. Like, like I say, we do have some records that are pretty good. We put a tag on a, a female shark that had um, some maybe two to three month old mating wounds on her head. Um, at the Farallons um, one year, and that next season, the tag came off right at two harbors at Catalina Island, and Sal actually went down there and found the tag, which is not easy to do. He got the tag back, and so we got all the data points from that. And um, that's the pattern we expected, actually, was one year they come back to the Farallons to feed or along the coast here. They go back out to this cafe, and then when they come back that next year, two-year cycle, they're ready to pup, and they go to this California bite to give birth. And that's what we think they do. Hmm. So, so that was a good record because it, it showed that. Wow. <laughs> which is what we wanted to see. And this is all really recent information in terms of what we knew about sharks. This is within mm-hmm. the last 15 years, really, that we're starting to get a picture. Yeah. This technology is really helping us advance a whole lot more understanding in terms of animals and whatnot. Um, in terms of the future for research... And what's happening now, is there, are there any new focuses that you see coming in in terms of questions about the sharks? You know, it's, it, there's always going to be something new to find out. Um, and there's always some questions that haven't been answered appropriately. And one is, is where do they breed? You know, that's a, that's a big one. Um, and it's kind of interesting that there's two groups that think two different things. You would think it would be a little more obvious, um, but it's not. So I think the thing that's going to come... Uh, soon is just going to be long-term monitoring at these, they call them hotspots, these different places where they're known to be, and looking at the how stable the population is and how long these sharks actually live. Um, that's kind of where we're going. There's a few other things that you could look into, energetics, how, how much food would it take to keep a shark going, things like that. So, so there's still stuff out there. Um, and we'll just have to see, like I say, with this new generation of tags, what um, what they're finding out and where that leads people. Um, the the one thing that that I think people should put more energy into is is to look at a tag that does the same thing that these guys are doing, but isn't requiring catching the animal. And there is a possibility. There's uh, people that have actually studied whale sharks, and they go down with this uh, tag. It's the same kind. It's a spot tag, just like what these guys are putting on. But instead of bolting it onto the shark, it's on a like a little clamp, like a bear trap type clamp. When it springs, it stays closed, and it stays on the fin. Of course, you have to place it properly and all that. But it's, it snaps onto the fin and just stays there as long as there's tension. And then it should have some kind of timer or a... Um, two metal link where it dissolves eventually and then falls off. That's the idea. So I believe that, or the other thing is these satellite tags, the ones we've been using, only last one year. Well, they could make one that's twice as big with a twice as long a life with a bigger battery and stuff, and then we would get that two-year record. Um, so I think that's kind of where we're, we're going to start looking into developing some kind of tag that's less uh, – 
uh, less uh, detrimental to the shark, period, and, um, and gives us more information. Otherwise, we're probably just going to continue to monitor the population like we are. That's good. What are some of the bigger concerns for sharks and the fu- white sharks in the future here with some of the big doom and gloom questions we have with climate change and um, yeah. um, plastics in the ocean? 50 million years they've been around. So, <laughs> so hopefully they can <laughs> teach us something. <laughs> I think the climate's changed a few times. Yeah, they'll be around. I, I, you know, there's going to be – if the climate changes radically, there's going to be shifts in pinniped populations and salmon population. Everything's going to move around. But I just don't see this um, scenario where um, the water warms up and everything that was there dies and everything north of there is fine. You know, it's more like everything's going to shift. Things are going to move more north. We may have less salmon in the future and more tuna, that kind of thing, if the water is warmer. But it, it, things are going to shift and move around because a lot of these animals have been around f- through these changes before. And they may not be as extreme and as fast, but um, things things have survived. So, Last question because I have a couple other announcements to finish the show off with. But um what would you want people to know? It seems like, yes, we've changed our attitudes for the most part. And again, I'm pretty naive saying that in terms of sharks. We still have Discovery Channel Shark Week and whatnot promoting this hype and media. <laughs> but what do you think is the most important thing we can do to help sharks maintain their populations and to come back? We've got some global problems with shark finning and yeah. um, fishing in other countries. But what do you think we can do here in the United States to help promote conservation for them? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jenny. And I would have to say that if you look at the history of the white shark and the way it's gone, that we would do if we could do with every shark species the way we've dealt with white sharks, then we would have success. Because white sharks were demonized. You know, Jaws was about white sharks, and there's all this really bad press, and when people get attacked, you know, it's just terrible. Um, people die. You know, it's just a sad thing. It's a tragedy. But um, people in California. Admire their white sharks and um, and they love them basically is the way I perceive it. Uh, so, so you have an educated population that's gone from demonizing white sharks to actually, uh, you know, they take their little kids to the aquarium and everybody loves white sharks. So, uh, the, it's changed. Um, and if you could do that with blue sharks, mako sharks, tiger sharks, and all these other animals that are the ones that are being targeted or actually uh, depleted, and people might have more of an appreciation for them because each species has its uh, unique interest. So, um, you know, if you see a blue shark, you're right away. You're, most people are in awe. They're just beautiful. So um, I think that's what people need to do is just um, hear more about what they're really all about and, and not just be afraid of them. The word shark, I, I like your introduction to this whole thing. You kept calling it a fish, and it really is a fish. And uh, it's a great fish. <laughs> well, thank you, Scott, so much. This is amazing. I feel like I actually got all these questions in. I'm really <laughs> impressed because I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to get through this. So thank you so much for coming in. I'm glad I caught you during non-shark season, <laughs> and um, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jenny. It's been great being here. Thanks so much, and uh, good luck out on the water this year. Okay. Thank you. Um, just stand by a little bit. I do have a couple other announcements here to share before we close up the show here and make room for Mr. Rick Clark. Um, as I mentioned, June being a big month, <clears throat> excuse me, being a big month, we've got World Oceans Day happening tomorrow. And what is this? It's kind of like Earth Day. But in 2008, it was officially recognized by the UN General Assembly by a resolution that was passed 
And it's an opportunity to promote the need for more awareness about the ocean, the dominant habitat on our planet. So if you get online, there's a series of events happening all over the world to help promote some basic awareness. And I'm considering this my World Oceans Day celebration. It's a good topic. So uh, we'll get this up on our podcast as soon as possible. And lastly, a couple other things. Jacques Cousteau. I don't know. I, I'm, I, the 100th anniversary, it really kind of set me back in terms of thinking about the impact of this person and what he brought to us in terms of getting us underwater and showing us things that we never knew about through the technology of the aqualung and scuba. Um, and if you have a chance to Google up a little bit about Jacques Cousteau, it's amazing, this Internet stuff, um, learning about his life and what he did. His kids today are still promoting ocean conservation. But I'm, I would like to get some of these old films and check these out. Did you ever see these films, Scott, when you were growing up? Uh, yeah. In fact, I couldn't wait to hear the music. And um, <laughs> he's a real hero of mine. Um, I went and saw Philippe give a talk um, my dad took me again. My dad's my hero as well. But, yeah, just uh, what an inspiration. The guy was amazing. He came up with some incredible stuff. Uh, you know, scuba is just something we take for granted. And he pretty much invented it. So uh, love the ocean. And he predicted a lot of the stuff that's actually happening in the oceans today. So great guy. Yeah. Awesome. So if, uh, if you have a red beanie and you can uh, promote Jacques Cousteau tomorrow or the, uh, the 11th, I found a little red beanie. You can walk around and, and – uh, talk about Jacques Cousteau and help celebrate him on his 100th birthday. Um, last thing I want to bring up, because we got to get out of here, but um, the Gulf of the Farallons and the Cordell Bank Sanctuaries just released a report that Scott actually touched on earlier. What's going to happen with climate change? And there was a working group set up with a, a lot of scientists in the area here, our sanctuary advisory councils and staff that uh, compiled information of what they think will happen in this region here in the marine ecosystem with climate change in the future and has a series of outcomes that are very interesting to read. It's all online at farallons.noaa.gov. So I'll hope you take a look at that. It's a really incredible group of scientists that contributed to this and really will help um, create new programs for us to how to deal with these things and best prepare for the changes that could come. We're already seeing some of the changes with Humboldt squid and gray whales and bottlenose dolphins. And I even learned about the northern, the northward shift of the volcano barnacle. That Which has, is the volcano barnacle? That's a rather large barnacle. Okay, looks like yeah. a volcano and it's yeah. moving up the coast. And I never, you know, the intertidal zone is showing impact too. So very, very interesting. Check that out at farallons.noaa.gov. But I'm going to wrap it up here today on Ocean Currents. If you want to tune in for past shows of this program, you can come to the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website at Cordell, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. You can listen to the shows live there or um, download a podcast and subscribe to that for all the shows. And we'll definitely get this one up there as soon as we can. And... Uh, We'll be back next month with another program. Thanks so much for tuning in, and thanks again to Scott Anderson. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR.
Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks for helping to protect our ocean.